The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. This chapter is really one of the great ones that we have in Scripture, and I'm just really anxious for for us to get a little bit further into this chapter, uh, especially as we get into verses 15 through 20, and there we'll have the opportunity to study about church discipline, and that's one of the most important issues that we face as a church. The Bible teaches how we are to approach members that have fallen into sin and what we're to do when... Uh, Church members do not respond to the correction of the word and to the discipline of the church. All of us need to recognize that we represent Christ wherever we are, and we are to be a pure church, and we're to do our best to be an example for Christ so that we don't bring reproach upon his name. As we look at this particular text today, you should remember what I've just said, because Jesus, God, is very particular about his people. He has his watchful eye on us because we are his children. And his eye is also on anyone that would dare harm his children. Here he shows that there are terrible consequences to those that would endanger a child of God, one that would harm him bodily or try to destroy his faith by leading him into sin. Now today we'll start at verse number one, and uh, this is the second part of the message that I began last week, and I want to tie all these thoughts together. So we'll go back to verse number 1 again in the 18th chapter and read there down to verse number 10. I'll ask you to stand one more time. I know it's a lot of up and down, but we'll stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word and begin at Matthew 18, verse number 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire." And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. And we just pray that you would bless and open up our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
One of the areas that I really like talking to you about last week is the way that Jesus identifies with his people. His favorite term that we find throughout Scripture for those that have been chosen and those who have been called by God is the word child. That the word of God says that we are the children of God. And as a parent watches over his child and as a parent considers the child to be an extension of himself, so does Jesus see his children as those who have been born into his family, born into the family of God. Now, last week I began the message by, by speaking of how that God cares for his children. One of the reasons that Jesus pulled aside a little child and set him in the midst of the disciples was to show them that in his eyes they were like children. A child is helpless. A child doesn't know how to care for himself. I mean, as far as being defenseless, human babies are probably the least capable of taking care of themselves of any of God's creatures. And I don't mean, mean to compare us to creatures, to animals, because we didn't come from animals. But you look at the, the, at the little babies of, of animals, and, and those animals grow very quickly. It's not long before a small animal to, learns how to get its food and how to find shelter. But the Word of God continually refers to us as children, and humans are not like that. I mean, there's none of us that would leave a six-month-old baby by itself We won't leave a one-year-old. We won't leave a two-year-old by itself. We won't even leave a ten-year-old by himself because we know that that child can get into trouble. There are things that will harm him. And so we try to protect that child because we know that he cannot take care of himself. Now, this is what Jesus tried to impress upon his disciples. Their their helplessness. They were were truly helpless in, in the kingdom of God. Now, Even though they were men in God's eyes, they were little children that needed to be cared for. And as we look at them on a spiritual level, as we've watched them as Jesus tried to train them, we see how helpless that they really were and how little that they understood of what Jesus was saying. Their pride had caused them to think that they really didn't need very much care. And the argument that we find taking place in the beginning of these scriptures is they were arguing who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven as if they supposed that they really didn't need anyone's help. Jesus told them not to think about who was the greatest in the kingdom because they were just children. They needed the humility of children. And like a parent watches over a child, the father, the heavenly father is the one who cares for us and makes sure that we have what we need. We are helpless in God's spiritual kingdom. We have no spiritual ability. Everything that we are and everything that we will ever have must come from the hand of the Father. So we talked about how God cares for us and he takes care of the things that we need. Then we learned how that God protects his people. And if you'll permit me to use another illustration, and I don't often go into these kinds of illustrations, but I remember when I was very young, that every year we would take a trip to the Great Smoky Mountains. My dad was from Kansas, and he lived close to the flat prairies where you could see for miles, but there was no place that you could really get up high to see all you wanted to see. And so I suppose that he had some kind of a fascination when we moved to Kentucky, a fascination with high places. And so every year we would make a trip to the Great Smoky Mountains, and there we would go up in the mountains of, uh, on the border there of Tennessee and North Carolina. And one of the attractions is, and maybe it's not so much as prevalent now as it was then, 
But you used to see black bears in the spring after they come out of hibernation and they have the little cubs with them and they would have these little newborn cubs that they would lead through the forest and those little cubs would dig for grubs and they'd hunt for berries. One of the problems in the park was that a bear likes to get easy food. And so the bears would go into the parking lots where people had thrown food in the trash cans and the bears would dump the trash cans over and eat the food out of the trash can. And so the park rangers would always tell visitors, don't get too close to them, don't feed the bears. And especially what you don't want to do, you don't want to approach one of the cubs of a, of a mother bear. Now the mother bears were very protective, and if there was a perceived threat of any kind, then a mother bear could be on you in a split second, I mean in a heartbeat, Before you'd even know it, that mother bear could be on you, and that bear has sharp claws that can tear your flesh. And so they would warn about these bears that were trying to protect their cubs. And I thought about that as I read this passage of Scripture, that God has his watchful eye on his children, and we belong to him. And God is intent on protecting us from those that would cause us harm. And we find throughout Scripture that there are many places that speak about God's protection. I'd encourage you to go back and review that part of last week's sermon. If you ever have any doubts about whether God loves you, about whether God cares for you, about whether he will protect you, then just go back and read those scriptures that we covered last week. There are plenty of places in the Bible that speak of God's protection. Now, they show us that both Jesus and God the Father hold us in his hand. I mean, there is such protection that the Heavenly Father and Jesus hold us in, our, in, in their hands so Satan cannot get our souls. He cannot touch our salvation. We are doubly secure because of the almighty hand of the Father. Well, then we went on and we talked about the third area, and that's that God blesses those that benefit us. And I said this is the, the part of the sermon that we talked about where God identifies with his children. And I really like to talk about this. And he couldn't have said it in a better way than what he said in verse number 5, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. Now, the Bible teaches that when you become a Christian, when you trust Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ. When you become one of God's children, you are no longer you, you no longer belong to you. You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and you are in him by regeneration and by faith, and you've received a new nature from God, so that when the Heavenly Father sees you, he actually sees Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus could say, if you receive my children, you have received me. And if you bless one of my children, you have blessed me. And if you help one of my children, you have helped me. And Christ promised a reward to those that help his children. He says, if you've done it to them, you've done it to me. And that's how close, how intimate that we are with the Savior. I know there are many people who think that God is far off, that God is somewhere on the backside of the universe, and he really doesn't care what's happening here. But nothing could be further from the truth because God is not far off. He is so close to his children that his spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ in us so that whatever is done to you is done to him. And that has powerful, wonderful 
magnificent consequences for anyone who would help one of God's children. Because when you've done it to them, as we tried to make that point so clearly last week, when you've done it to them, you've done it to him. Last week we talked about the positive benefits of being God's child. The positive aspects of this passage is that God cares for us, that God protects us, and God will bless every person that helps you. And I need to remind you as members of the church that you are to help other members of the church. The Apostle Paul said, members should have the same care one for another. And so if you're guilty of mistreating another member, if you're guilty of gossiping about one of the members of the church or hurting them in any way, just know this, that when you look that person in the eye, you are looking into the eyes of the Savior. He gave his life for every believer. And so whatever you do to them, you've done to him. So we talked about that positive side of the passage, and I wanted to spend last week just telling you about the positives. But what Jesus actually did was to deal more with negatives than he did with positives. Now, we use verse number 5 to begin talking about the positives, but Jesus actually used that verse to launch into all of the negatives. And I'm speaking about the retributions, about the vengeance that comes on those that would harm one of his children. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to add uh, the negative side to this, and you really need to pay attention to this, because God blesses those that benefit us, but also God curses those that cause harm to us. I want you to look at verse number 6, and this is just a graphic illustration of how that Jesus is angry at anyone that would touch one of his children. And this is a side of Jesus that you really need to see, but you don't want to be caught on this side of him as being an object of his righteous anger. He says in verse number 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones who believe in me, and be aware that he's not talking here specifically about physical little children, but now he's talking about spiritual children, those who are the children of God. But if, you'll, if you offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, how much clearer could Jesus be than this? Now, let me tell you why that this is even more serious than what first appears. Now, first, we think about the millstone that Jesus speaks of here. Uh, in those days, the, the women would have a millstone in their home, a small millstone. Uh, we would think of it more like of a mortar and a pestle. And they would take that flour that had been received from the miller, and they would put it into the, to a little bowl, and they would grind it finer than what they had received from the miller. So all the women had these little millstones that they kept in the house. Here Jesus is not talking about that millstone, but rather he's referring to the huge millstones, ones that were so heavy that it took a, a donkey or an ox to pull it. And these were two flat stones that were cut into a circular shape, and they were placed one on top of the other, and they could turn independently of each other, and the grain was placed between the two millstones, and that flour or that wheat would be ground into flour. Now those millstones were connected. They had a hole in them. They could turn separately so the flour was ground. And that's the stone that Jesus is speaking of here. 
And he says, for anyone that harms one of my children, it would be better for that person to have his head put through the center of one of these massive millstones and to have that stone hung around his neck. Now, that alone would crush a person to death. Just the weight of that stone would would crush him. But then to add to the horror of this, Jesus said that it would be better to hang that stone around a person's neck and then take them out and cast them into the depths of the sea. And that second part that he adds there is a superlative of horror. And that's because the Jews didn't kill anybody by drowning. Uh, And I think anybody would be afraid of drowning. But this was especially a, a horrific death for a Jew because the Roman government would sometimes do that to their people. And when they weren't crucifying people, this is one of the things that they would do. They would take them out and they would throw them into the sea and they would weight that body down and they would drown this horrible death, drown and, and be killed in this horrible death. And Jesus says that if you harm one of mine, it would be better for you to be taken out into the deepest part of the sea to have your body weighted down with a massive millstone, take you out there where you'll never be heard from again, where the sea is do- so deep and the sea creatures are so large that you'll never be heard from. Now, he could be referring to that, or he could be referring to things that they had seen with their own eyes, and that is the Roman government taking someone out to the Sea of Galilee and then putting stones all over their body, putting massive weights on them and throwing that person into the sea. And the idea that he gives us here is a person sinking with no hope. Now, that's serious. It's serious to harm one of God's children. Uh, You may think that it's a little bit cute to gossip about somebody that's in the church. You may have thought that you were getting even with someone when you blasted them on your Facebook page, when you said something harmful to them, nasty about them, and so your 500 fake cyber friends could read it. Let me tell you something. You're wading into deep waters. These are waters that are far over your head. And if you try this, you'll sink to the bottom in a flash if you do not repent of your sins. See, what's happening here is you're messing with God's children. And God does not like people messing with his children. And what's more, you can't stick your face in the finger of God and say, well, what are you going to do about it? He's just told you what he can do about it. And I tell you, it's worse than what verse number 6 says says here. Now, why is it so serious? Well, do you remember the verses that we read in Matthew 25 last week? Matthew chapter 25. I want you to turn there for just a minute, and let's refresh ourselves with this scripture. We talked about the positive side of it last week, and now we need to look at the end of what Jesus says here and get the negative part, which starts with verse number 41. Now, verses 35, 36, 37, on through verse 40, Talk about how that Christ identifies with his people. And he said that when you give one of his children food, or when you give them something to drink, or when you give them clothes, when you give them shelter, when you go to them when they're in prison, he said, when you do those things, it's like you did them to me, because I identify with my children. That's the positive side. Now, the negative side starts in verse number 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. 
Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, this is so serious because Christ identifies with his children. And you can't ignore his children when they have needs. If you do, it's like walking on by Christ if he was hungry. It's like turning your back on him when he was thirsty. It's like seeing him led into Pilate's judgment hall and there where he was beaten and he was scourged and where he was mocked. It's like standing there with those people and doing the same things to Jesus that they did. You don't want to be caught in a place like that. Millstones and drowning and everlasting punishment and hellfire. This is what Jesus says are reserved for those that harm God's children. Now notice verse number 7. And this verse takes us much deeper into the problem of offending one of God's children. And I'm afraid, quite frankly, that there may be some of you here today that you find yourself in this verse. He says, Woe unto the world! Because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Now, you remember what Jesus said? He said, and he taught this, that offenses would come. If you are a believer, you can expect this. Offenses will come. Now, the Christian life is not easy street, no matter what Joel or any of the false prophets tell you. And to demonstrate that, Jesus said, here's what it's going to be like for you. Now, if you'll turn back to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples to preach. And he said, here's what will happen to you. People will be so glad to hear about salvation that they'll grab you by your feet, by your legs, and they'll kiss your feet and they'll applaud you and they'll express undying gratitude for your kindness because you've told them about the kingdom of God. Is that what Jesus said? Now, here's what he said, beginning in the 16th verse. He said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they shall deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Verse 22, he says, And ye shall be hated of all men, For my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Verse 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. Offenses will come. Jesus said, it must needs be that offenses come. And he meant that people are so wicked and hearts are so black and they are so depraved that it is inevitable for offenses to come. They will hate you as a child of God. They do not want to hear your message. But he says to these disciples, woe to that person who brings the offense. As we look at that a little bit deeper, Jesus said, woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Now, woe is what you call an onomatopoeic word. Does anybody know what that means? 
onomatopoeic. It means it's a word that sounds like what you're saying. Here, the word woe is actually the word oh we. You ever heard a Jewish person say oh we? It's a, an expression of terrible grief, a terrible weight. Isaiah said that when he saw the throne of God. He said, woe is me, or oh we, for I am a man of unclean lips. He had just seen, as a sinner, he'd just seen God. And then there's this word offense, and that's the word scandalon in the Greek. It's a word that means where we get scandalous. Here it means someone who would cause another person to stumble, that would cause them to fall into a trap. And the trap that he's speaking here is of sin. This is a warning against people that would cause one of God's children to fall into sin. A warning against anyone that would set a trap for them and cause them to fall. Well, what can you do to cause one of the little ones to fall into sin? What can you do that causes a child of God to fall? Well, I I would start by addressing parents. What have you done to lead your children away from the church? What do you do when you stay home from church and you find other things to do on Sunday when they could come and hear the teaching of the Word of God in their classes or hear it in the preaching? What do you let your kids get involved with? Who do you let your kids run with? What kind of activities do you let them do? And then what about the church member when you wear maybe provocative clothing to, tr- to church and you entice people to look at you? What about girls when your clothes are so tight that the boys can count the molds on you? And what about it when you bend over and there's nothing left to the imagination? What about parents when you let your children look so worldly that there is no testimony for Christ? You know what you're doing? As parents, you're setting a trap for your children to fall into sin. And church members, you can set a trap for evil thoughts right here in the house of God. So you need to know that people are watching you, and they may think that what you do is okay because you're a Christian. And what do Christians do? Well, Christians follow Christ, don't they? And so what Christians do, that must be the right thing to do because they're following the Lord. And after all, they are Christians, aren't they? And then what about your faithfulness? You know, I really tire of Christians who think that going to church is what pastors do, and that's what deacons do. Sometimes we can't even get Sunday school teachers to make an extra effort. So what are you teaching your class? What, what goes on in your life throughout the week that if the Sunday school children were able to watch you and see what you do, would you be setting a trap for them by the activities that you do? Would they see you and think, well, being righteous and being holy and walking after the commandments of God, that's really not important for us. But this is the very thing that Jesus is talking about here. What are we as Christians who are supposed to know better and supposed to have our lives dedicated to the Lord, what are we doing that may cause other people to fall into sin? Now, do you know what the Bible tells us to do? It does have instructions for us. It tells us to be active in going in the opposite direction. That instead of enticing others to sin, whether directly or indirectly, rather we do something else. What does it say for us to do? Well, listen, and 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 watch out for the kicker here. In Hebrews 10 it says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. 
Provoke means to stimulate, to incite an action. Provoke, it says, to love and to good works. And you see the colon after that? Provoke unto love and good works. That means there's a connecting thought. Do you know what it is? Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. See, the Bible is telling us that Christians are to be proactive in removing the snares. That means that what we're supposed to be doing is be busy about cleaning up the road and guiding others around the obstacles that are there that are set by Satan instead of pushing people over them. The writer says, don't be like others. Provoke to good works by not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Now, as I read that, I think that I can understand very clearly that what he's telling us is that going to church is a good thing to do. That going to church will help you to navigate some of those pitfalls that are in life that will help you to steer around the bad things because when you come to church, you can be here and honor and glorify God. Going to church is a good way to be proactive about encouraging other people to good works. And that's about as basic as you can get in Christianity. And yet in many services, I'm preaching to empty pews where members of Berean Baptist Church ought to be sitting. Now let me call your attention to another scripture. I'll show you something else about causing one of God's children to stumble. This is in Habakkuk 2, verse number 15 from the Old Testament. It says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Now, do you see what the writer is talking about here? He's talking about drinking Christians that would invite another member of the church over for a beer and a drink and encourage others to do so. There's a pastor in town that I saw in a restaurant some time ago And he asked me if I would come over and sit down with him and have a beer. Do you realize how many Christians have been saved out of that? Did you know that there are some Christians, there are some members of Brean Baptist Church that were former alcoholics and God saved them out of that sin? What do you think it's like if you put a temptation in front of them again for that sin? What do you think it does to somebody when they come to church or when you see them outside and you set a trap for them to fall into sin? And never mind about all those that talk about how it's a Christian liberty and you can take this or leave it if you want. What does the Bible say about taking Christian liberties and causing other Christians to stumble and fall? Well, Paul was dealing with the same issue when he was speaking to those that ate meat that were sacrificed to idols. Now, that was something that he had to contend with in his time. There were all these people that were pagans, and they sacrificed to idols, and sometimes they would take that meat that was offered, and they would sell it in the marketplaces. And so people would come and ask, well, what do you do? Is it all right to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul says, well, sure, it's okay. It's okay, because the idol, that doesn't mean anything. The idol is nothing. And he says, the meat that's offered to an idol, that's nothing either. It's just meat, and that idol's just something stone. It doesn't matter. But then he added to that, and he said, but, but this, if it causes a weaker brother to sin, then you don't do it. And here's what he says, but when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. 
And I'll tell you the truth, I question who is the weaker brother here. Is it the one who's offended by the drinking of alcohol, or is it the one that's not offended by it? And there are a lot of preachers that I think are weaker than the people that they preach to. Now, do you see how serious this is? You have a responsibility to others that are in your church. And so you have to be careful about what you do because you don't want to cause harm to one of God's children. Don't cause them to fall into a trap of sin. Now, we go on to verses 8 and 9. Jesus said, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now, if you look at that carefully, you need to understand that Jesus is not telling people that the thing that you need to do is you need to cut off your hands and cut off your feet and gouge out your eyes if they cause you to fall into sin. He's not literally telling you to do that. In Matthew chapter 5, he said the same thing to those that are unbelievers. And what he's pointing out here is that sin is so serious to God that you had better get busy doing something about it. You'd better get busy working on this sin because God looks at sin as a horrific thing against him. And so he's telling us here that you'd better get hopping on this problem right now because judgment is coming and you're going to hell. That's what he says to the unbeliever. And it's not a matter of, well, I can solve part of the problem of going to hell by cutting off my hands and my feet and gouging out my eyes so I won't have those members of my body to suffer in hell. Well, you need to understand then that at the resurrection of the damned, God's going to give you all your body parts back. And they're all going to be in hell, suffering for eternity, because you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's an application that's made to the unbeliever. Here, he's making more of an application to believers. And he says that God is serious about the sins of believers. He's serious when you offend one of his children. And so he's saying also that you need to get busy as a child of God, getting rid of any sin in your life that causes another person to fall. Do you know that your life may cause someone on the other side of the room to stumble and fall? You may be an offense to them, and they're just skinned up, and they're bruised, because every time that they come around you, they're enticed to sin. Now, you're going to keep hearing this kind of thing from me. I mean, what did you put on your Facebook page? What's there? And, and, and where were you last night? What were you doing? What kind of language have you been using? Who do you hang out with? What do you wear? How do you look? How many people are bruised up and falling because you have a lousy testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ and for this church? You don't want to be guilty of causing other people to fall into sin. Now, the other verses are about what happens to, uh, what others do to God's people. Now, these two verses are talking about what happens internally. What's in your heart? And we back up to verse number 3. If people are stumbling over you, then maybe you're a dead rock in the middle of the road. You're not actually going anywhere yourself. You're just a big rock that's stuck in the middle of the road that people are falling over. And the question that Jesus asked back in verse number 3 is, are you really converted? 
If that's the way you live your life and that's what you're doing, have you really converted to Jesus Christ? Has your heart actually been changed by Him? And He's encouraging us to examine that, to find out, are we really in the faith? If you're the kind of person who says, well, I know it's wrong to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, then you need to check up. You need to see if you've truly been converted. Get serious about it, because you may have thought that you were sailing along to heaven without a care in the world, but actually, God has put a millstone around your neck, and you're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper all of the time. Examine your heart, examine your life, to see if you truly are a child of God. Have you been converted? Get serious about it. God causes harm to those that would harm his children. Now, let me give you another scripture. I'd like you to go to the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15. You don't want to be guilty of leading others astray. And, and you're, you're listening to me today. We're, we're not playing church here. Now, you, you might like to go to the flitty, feel-good churches and, and that kind of thing, if you want that kind of Christianity, then you have to go someplace else because we're going to deal with the Word of God here. God expects something from you, and it's more than a lot of church members are giving. Now, we're almost done. Let's see the seriousness of the offense of causing someone to fall. Deuteronomy 13, verse number 6. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul... Entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he has sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Now, do you see what he's talking about here? He's talking about someone that would lead a person into idolatry. Idolatry is the chief sin that he's speaking of here. And do you know this, that when you put something in front of what God wants for you, you have made that thing an idol. And when you do this, when you say, by your life, you can follow me, and you do as I do, and you enter into sin, and you do things that are against God, you have just made yourself bigger than God. You have made yourself the idol that others follow, and you are guilty of taking people into idolatry. So you don't want to be confused about what the Bible says about idolatry. You look at the Old Testament, and you see these people making idols of stone and of wood and crafting things out of gold and silver to bow down and worship to. That's a form of idolatry for sure. But when the Bible speaks of idolatry in the New Testament, most often it's speaking about these kinds of things, the things that you set up in front of God, making yourself a God by doing things that God says you're not to do. When you defy God, you're saying that what I want is bigger than what God should have. And that is idolatry. And in the Old Testament, you know what they said to do with a person who was guilty of idolatry? 
leading another person to go into the sin of idolatry. It's not pleasant. It says in the verses we just read, put him to death. Now, I'm not advocating we kill church members. We wouldn't have very many if we, if we dealt with the sin of idolatry in this way. But I am telling you that God is very serious about sin. You don't want to cause people to fall into sin because God curses those that cause his people to sin. Now, this chapter goes on, and in the next verses, we'll see how that all of heaven is set to defend the people of God. Next week, we're going to talk about guardian angels. Are, is there such a thing as guardian angels? And then comes, after that, the discipline of those that offend in the church. What do you do with people who cause harm to God's children? Now, if that's something that you've done, as a Christian, if you're guilty of this, then the thing that you need to do right now is to repent of that. You need to tell God that you're sorry for that. You need to turn from that sin. You don't want to be guilty of this. Whether it's active or inactive, you need to repent and get right with God. Make sure that you are truly converted and get right with God. And then on the other hand, if you're not a Christian, you must also repent. You need to turn to Jesus Christ and place your faith in Him because the Bible says you cannot go to heaven without Him. It is impossible to see God, to live in heaven, to avoid hell, unless you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is no other way but Him. The Bible gives us no other possibilities but Jesus Christ. And it would be better for you to cut off your arm and cut off your legs and tear out your eyes than it would be to go to hell with those things. If that were possible, it would be far better for you to live out the rest of your life with half your body parts, being a paraplegic or whatever you might be, than it would be to defy the living God. But the thing is, you can trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can have all of your sins removed from you. You can be washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can have all of your body parts, all of them in heaven, to worship and glorify God forever and forever. Let's remember the theme that we're dealing with here. God identifies with his people. So be careful what you do around one of God's children. Don't cause them any harm. Let's pray. Father, we thank Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.